podcast this week. What's that noise? Is it a knock at the podcast door from Knock at the Cabin director M. Night Shyamalan? Is it? It is, because he's one of the people we're interviewing on this week's podcast. Plus, it's not all quiet on the all quiet on the Western Front front, because we talked to that film star, Felix Kammerer, ahead of its showing at the BAFTAs this weekend. How exciting. Plus, the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is tough on swearing, tough on the causes of swearing. That's right, mother fudgers. This is going to be a swearing-free podcast. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Emperor Podcast, which this week is brought to you in studio and not from King's Place. We are one week away from our triumphant 550th episode, which was recorded live at King's Place and was a whole ton of fun. A quick plug. You can still see that if you wish to see that as the live stream, chaotic live stream, unedited live stream, uh, by going to the King's Place website, kingsplace.co.uk and signing up, and that's still available for another week or so, I believe, if you wish to see it. If you don't, there's an edited version that's out right now as a free podcast. But if you do wish to see us, then that's what you can do. Uh, I am joined this week by my three counts, sorry, not swearing, of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara is here. Hello. Hello. Great big fudge and nerb James Dyer is also here. See, you were probably expecting me to follow that with some blaring line of expletives and just abuse. And I'm just going to say, hi, Chris, how are you doing? It's good to see you. Hello, James. How are you? I'm good. I like to be unpredictable. Yes, but your unpredictability is itself <laughs> predictable. I knew you wouldn't swear, oh. which is why I have lined up a howitzer of a <laughs> I'm going to bleep the door. It's going to be bleeped. It's all going to be bleeped. Oh. Uh what if I bleeped Sophie Butcher in in her entirety? Hello, <laughs> Sophie Butcher. How are you? Bleep, bleep. <laughs> Welcome. I'll too detail. Sophie, what are you? <laughs> what the hell Helen, are you? What the hell are you? Helen is geek queen. Mm. James is great big fucking nerd. You are what well, you know. I don't know what to introduce you as because you know you've you've done a number of podcasts mm-hmm. now, but I don't know that you've been on the main one enough to no. establish a persona no. so what would you like to be i don't know can you give yourself these titles i'm, 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 I'm open to yourself a nickname. i'm open to suggestions i'm open to suggestions see ben is Tweet the butcher <laughs> but you you are just yeah. a butcher the god butcher <laughs> the god butcher <laughs> sophie the god butcher yeah have a think have a think okay and then come back to me at the end of the podcast. Can I, I would I would like to make a brief contextual statement for everyone listening here. Anyone, and that of course is all of you who listened to the Pilot TV podcast last week, will have known that we did it in the studio without air conditioning, which led to a kind of a Diet Coke break where I was rubbing cans of Coke all over my semi-naked body. Uh, we are unfortunately which we've repeating, asked not to do. which yeah. they've asked me repeatedly not to do. I know it's Magic Mike Week. It is Magic yourself. Mike Week, yes, yeah. and I'm taking that very much to heart. So this is our first ever Naked Empire podcast, following on from the Naked Pilot TV podcast, because we are once again in a studio with no air conditioning, and this it's year, foul. It's absolutely it foul. Hot. It's horrible. It is horrible. Yeah. Uh, Sophie is even now making trophies of men, and <laughs> it's it's a it's a oh it's a whole thing. I probably shouldn't have worn as many layers as, I, as I'm wearing. You do mistake. have a jumper yeah. on. I was concerned about yeah. that when I saw you in the reception. Mm. I didn't have it on for the, the previous podcast we were doing. but mm. And then I put it back on to go yeah. out and get some food. Then it came back on and I left it on. I Too st- much information. Yeah, if I take it off now, I might do that thing where you, you know, my t-shirt rides up and then you, know, but then you get to see my nipples. And, naked <laughs> podcast, so that's fine. and then nobody needs to see that. So I don't know. So I have a question. Bring it. 
Uh, several questions, in fact. Oh, okay. Um, what are we talking about this week? The eternal question. Mm-hmm. Panic Shoutout elicited these questions. In honour of Toy Story 5, well, one person asks, Louis D. Strong, what would Toy Story 5 even be? <laughs> right. Which is in reference to the fact that this week it was announced that yeah. Disney are developing a fifth Toy Story, a third Frozen, a second Sutopia or Sutropolis, if you will, and a partridge in a pear tree. A partridge yeah. in a pear tree. And <laughs> I also learned that the first Sutopia or Sutropolis, if you will, made somehow a billion dollars yeah. at the box yeah. office. Yeah. How did that happen? It's a good film. It's a good film. It's a good film. It's yeah. a good film. It's not a billion dollars. A billion dollars is reserved for one of the greatest films like Transformers Dark of the Moon. Yeah. <laughs> yes, quite. Did that make a billion? Yes, I don't it know. did, yeah. Did it? I don't understand how. It's I dreadful. love Zootopia. I'm really happy about that. Yeah, it's good, and the sl- everyone loves the sloths. Yeah, yeah. Flash so. is great. Mm. I don't know. That's what it is. It's going to be a Flash movie. Yeah. Uh, I think, it'll I think, save every one of us just very slowly yeah I think the they're trying Fox that aren't they the yeah. yes <laughs> uh, anyway so Louis D. Strong asks what would Toy Story 5 even be and then Sam underscore Dykstra says in honour of Toy Story 5 what is a film franchise that went at least two movies too long and here's the thing if any of you motherfuckers say the MCU <laughs> you are being bounced out of here right now get you're out of here yes of course this group is highly yeah. likely yeah. to say the MCU phew that's good we're all sympathisers that's good <laughs> that's good we've all, we've all got the secret handshake obviously I'm actually thinking of Bond anyway oh but in your case, you think it went 23 movies too exactly. long. <laughs> At least. Now, um, two movies too... I mean, look, have the last two Fast and Furious movies been absolutely stellar? No. No. But maybe Fast 10 will get it back on track. Maybe. Maybe. Where would you, where, so where would you end? Where would you have ended? Because it should have ended, as indeed should the human race, at five. <laughs> mm. But first seven, I, seven, I do stand yeah. by. Seven is good. Seven it's is good. Very good Seven's one. good, but it's no five. Now, remind me, which is the one with the submarine? That would eight. be eight. I'd say, okay, yes. Yeah, so seven is, is where you draw yeah. the line. <laughs> I draw Three the line. Yeah, I draw the line at seven. <laughs> it feels um, like an episode pe- of Sesame it, Street. Yeah, it peaked at five. Yeah. It tailed off dramatically after seven. Transformers, I think, as we can all yeah. agree, has gone on several films too well, that, long. Although yeah. the Beast one actually looks fun from the trailer, mm. so maybe they'll get it back on track. I, just, see, I can forgive it because like, the first one is decent. Bumblebee good. is good. Bumblebee's good. All of the others are not. Mm. But again, I, I genuinely I did like that trailer for Beast, so mm. maybe it'll be really fun. I just don't understand where, when Transformers transform as a, you know, they're robots in disguise. Bam, bam, you can, bam, you're bam, not in disguise when you are a giant Kong-sized robotic gorilla. Mm. It just defeats the purpose. But if he's infiltrating other gorillas, then but, maybe that works. But what? But how do you but infiltrate other gorillas by being a giant mechanical gorilla? Mm. Not even passing as a gorilla, but just being a robot gorilla. Yeah, because like, how are the the other gorillas like are going to work at least partly on smell and think, hey, that guy doesn't smell uh, like gorilla. He should come in this podcast. They'd <laughs> <laughs> have a fucking field day. That guy doesn't smell like a gorilla. No. He smells like a car. Yeah. And they're not going to, you know, he has that new car him. smell. No, but, then, also... no, but then they'd go, hang on, I'm a gorilla. I don't know what a car is. Is let alone what they one might. smells like. There's like minor birds in the jungle that make the sound of and car major alarms. birds. Yay! Beep beep. But one second. <laughs> I, I just try harder, guys. Come on. Uh, so yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's possible. Gorillas are very smart. They can use tools. I have a question about the gorilla transformer. Yeah. Mm. Right. Isn't he like? Um, is he a prehistoric transformer? 
Sophie, you're young. You what, you know this what, stuff. Like a Dinobot. Why would yes. I know this stuff? Is he like that? Because no, you're young. I think that you different. hang out down the mall. So I know about prehistoric things. Also, <laughs> so yeah. she knows about eighties toys. The fact yes. that she's young would disqualify. <laughs> yeah, that's true. What, what, no, no, what actually, he's not wrong. He's not. He's not because the Dinobots were my era of toys. But whatever these animal bots are, were not my era of toys. I don't know what the fuck they are. So uh, yeah, I don't know. So they probably are more more Sophie's generation. I can mm. claim I've never had a Transformers toy. You've never had a Transformers toy. I'm no. so sorry. Did not have them up north. No, didn't make it up there. What did you play Just with growing up in Middlesbrough? <laughs> Just that little cup thing that you get the ball <laughs> the, the ball in a cup with the string. Yeah. 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 Oh Do you know what? This is the trauma of my childhood is that I, I waited. Like, you remember? This is the trauma. So you remember you remember <laughs> the Constructicons, the little green Constructicons? One time my butler not. was denied access to Claridge's. <laughs> <laughs> close, close. And the Constructicons all fit together to form Devastator. Yeah? Uh-huh. So he's the big one. And I used to go to the toilet every Saturday. I would go now. I'd saved up my pocket and i'd go down to the toy shop every saturday and say please sir please sir has devastator come in sir no he hadn't and this went on for months and months until I w- hey, 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 hey. that's exactly what happened hi, hi, come, hi, come, he never came out a, hey and we gotta do better yeah that's fair actually. i mean because i'm that was, new oh that, <laughs> that was like on point that was so was major kind. bird <laughs> I don't think it was. I think it was. Anyway, anyway, sorry, let, me, let me tell my heartrending story. So I wasn't able to get devastated because he so never came again. out over here. Like, well, certainly not during my childhood. It never came out over here. So in the end, that same pocket money, I finally conceded defeat, and I bought with that money three of the Dinobots. I bought Grimlock, I bought Sludge, Grimlock. and I bought yes. Slag. You will be unsurprised to hear Slag's name has since been changed to something else. <laughs> but Why? Slag was the Triceratops, and you know he didn't like, well, it was like Triceratops get around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. they, are, they are quite horny. Yeah, come on. Okay, okay. Put all of this one. down to the heat. Like it's like. <laughs> Yeah. And look, I, I love that James's trauma is I didn't get one toy, so I got three out yeah. of the toys. Hey, I paid for them them with my own well saved money. Which that you I were had, given that was enough to buy toys. That with. I had earned by being a child. My, my pocket money was like fifty p a week if they remembered. Do you know how many weeks it took to yeah. get like a Transformers equivalent? My God. Well they weren't as expensive back then, even though they were better made because they were die cast metal and not plastic. I don't know why what we was call the question? NURB. The question was, <laughs> I don't remember. It was a long time ago. No, the question was about franchises yes. that have gone on at oh, least two thumbs right. down. I, mean, I would argue the Transformers doesn't count because if you say that, because that means you're taking Bumblebee out of the equation, right? So are you saying that Transformers should have stopped after the first one and, and then, then just done Bumblebee. Then we don't get Bumblebee. Yeah, but Bumblebee's kind of a prequel, so I'm giving it a pass. Yeah, no, that's not how it works. I think so. I think it is. That's not how it works. Yeah, it I'm is. allowing it. Yeah. Jesus Helen's Christ. Helen's allowed it. She's a lawyer. <laughs> uh, Dirty Harry. I'm going to say All it. All right. Five Dirty Harry films. Was uh, it five or five. only four? Oh, that's quite good. Oh, that was good. That's quite yep. good. So, to tell you the truth, James, I've, I forgot myself in all this excitement. But being this is an Empire podcast, the most powerful movie podcast in the world, <laughs> uh, and could blow your ears clean off. Probably. You should ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Uh, I feel hot. Does that count? Yeah. Yeah, I feel hot and sticky yeah. and not in the good way. Hansel, he's so hot right yeah. now. And so am I. Yeah. Um, so there are five Dirty Harry films. There's Dirty Harry, then there's Magnum Force, then there's Too Sudden dirty, Impact, The Enforcer, and The Deadpool. I may have got this middle two mixed up. I'm sure someone will correct me <laughs> online. And uh, uh, most of them after the first one are terrible. So I'm going to say Dirty Harry. All right. Yeah, Dirty Harry. Would you say Rocky went on too long, but then 
but then by doing that, you get to Creed. Mm. But also, Rocky Four is loads of fun. But Rocky Four is one five of the is things. terrible though. Five. I don't I think five's five is terrible. Mm, with Tommy Gunn, no. I, I just, I'm not a fan of that one at all. But no. all is forgiven. I love Rocky Balboa. I love Rocky yeah, Balboa. Rocky Balboa is quite good. All right. Yeah. Okay, strike no, Rocky. Rocky from the record. Rambo, Rambo can probably be hoist by this particular petard. I would say yes. Because yeah. First Blood for me is a really, really great film. The second one's better. Dis- no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. The touch of Cameron. Despite, despite Jim Cameron's <laughs> presence as screenwriter, no, I don't think so. Alien. But no, we'll get on to Alien in a second. But no, I think, I think Rambo. For sure. Mm. Terminator. Terminator. Yes. I mean, Alien is a fair one. I think the answer to the question is all of them, pretty much, with the exception of the MCU, weirdly enough. Hey, there we go. Sophie. Die Hard? Oh, yeah. Yes, Yes. because the last two Die Hard films were built. Well, three. Three was the last good one. Yeah. Most franchises, let's be honest, should stop at three. Yeah. I know, because I'm. Except Fast and Furious. I'm quite worried about John Wick. I have utter faith in John. I, so do I. I have faith in Keanu. I have faith I in worried. Keanu. I have faith in Chance Tuchelski. I don't know. I just think if you get to 11 years into a franchise, mm. say, and you're just churning out the same old shit week after week after week, then I think that can get pretty old pretty quickly. Some people might say we've gone on 548 episodes too long. <laughs> uh, I don't know. John Wick, I'm very, very excited about. What was the one you were just saying there? I'm very hot. Terminator. Yeah. Terminator. Sophie, you're quite young. What are the kids' franchises that are that are that are, that are hit today down the uh, high down the school disco, musical two down the three. disco? I don't think it's as good as High School Musical. <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there. What about Step Up but to the Streets? High School Step Musical. The seminal show, text. The musical, the show, is actually really fun. Okay, I've heard so, that. Yeah, interesting. Um, Step Up to the Streets is the pinnacle of that franchise. Oh, famous. absolutely. Yeah, but the more recent one was not great. I'll be honest. The most recent. I also think. Uh, the Purge just came to me in that. Oh, uh, yeah. I like mm. one, I like two. Which was the most recent one? Was it like, election year? No, the no, most recent one was the, the, first the first Purge. And then first, it was the it's Forever Purge. Mm. Uh, I think it was the Forever Purge was the last one I saw. Yeah. Frank, I don't think I've seen Forever Purge, Purge, actually. It was pretty yeah. good, I thought. I think they're all, they're yeah. all solid. Frank yeah. Grillo said that in my interview him for the magazine a couple of months ago, he said that he and James DeMonaco are talking about doing another Purge that would focus on his character and he's in the two best ones mm. which are mm. a Purge Anarchy and Purge Election Year so I'd, yeah. I'd be up for that. Okay. Is yeah. anyone going well, to say Star like Wars? No. Well, maybe. Well, I mean, I mean, y- yes. It, but then that, we wouldn't get Last Jedi. That is true. That yeah. is true. And then a lot of people listening to this would be like, and rightly so, because they hate it and they're wrong. But also, you know, we don't talk about The Rise of Skywalker on account of it not being a film that exists. But if it did exist, if there were a ninth film in that particular saga, that would be disappointing. Mm. I do feel like this is going to tie into, you know, some news stories we talk about this week. Yeah, isn't Toy it? Because, Story, and also yeah. one of the reviews this week, we're going to be talking about franchise, you know, mm. drift, I think. Tokyo but, um, Drift, Helen. <laughs> no, franchise drift, James. But uh, the... But yeah, I, do, I you know, in terms of these particular films, in terms of Toy Story, Zootropolisopia, and uh, and Frozen, you have to hope that while they come from very cynical, exec-driven decisions, like Disney also announced this week that it's laying off seven thousand people. Mm-hmm. So it's not a coincidence that they also announced sequels to three billion-dollar-grossing franchises. Mm. Um, but you have to trust that the creatives who are actually given this cynical task will do their usual, will pour, you know, heart and soul and blood into it 
until they come up with something good. I mean, yeah, I Toy Story Four, I don't, I don't adore. I know a lot of people like it, but like Toy Story Three is, Three is it's great, an astonishingly yeah. great film. You know, uh, Toy, uh, Frozen Two, a lot of people like better than Frozen. Uh, Zootropolis Opia gave people something we haven't <laughs> really seen before. So, like, there's every reason to hope for these films to yes, be good. There is. Um, there is. I, I'm surprised we haven't had a Frozen Three announcement, to be honest, yeah, because yeah. the last one came out and did more than the original mm -hmm. yeah, at yeah. the box office, and you know. Uh, the stuff you can buy, the frozen toys that are online, seem to be almost exclusively frozen too. So Maybe you will get to finally see them build a snowman. Maybe we will. Ben mentioned earlier in the office that I and I think this is correct that it'll be the first trilogy from Disney Studios Animation. I think that's what he said. Well, Ben is frozen. the expert. Oh, that's true. No, that is true. Yeah. yeah. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. There've been three Lion King films. Right. Yeah, yeah so. but they they come from the different yeah, strands. It's different. What? It's a different it's, strand. It hang was on. like so. So Disney was always very clear that there was like Disney studio animations, uh -huh. and then there was then their there cheap the straight to video spin-offs. Spin yeah. And there's loads of trilogies in there. Yeah. Oh my god, there's like a million. But there are very very few in the main Disney strand. There's the Rescuers had two, for example, in the main strand. I think who can forget the Rescuers um, Down Under? I like the Rescuers mm -hmm. Down Under, but I was very very small. I beg your pardon. But but yeah, I I can't think of another three. Certainly, I think he's right. Everyone's looking at me. Ben's yeah. a Disney expert. Just Ben's a Disney expert. Is he? Is he? Is he? <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. Um, hey, speaking of Disney, I saw The Princess and the Frog the other week, uh, the other day. Isn't it great? Uh, yeah. Showed it a little drinking game. She loved it. I was on set of that, as it were. Hang on, what? Were you? I got to go to Disney Animation Studios and see what they do there. Wow. Yeah. That's very cool. Where, That's by exciting. the way, and this is something I always have to say, like, by the way, they had cool art on the wall for it. There was something called King of the Elves, which has never come out, so it must have died on the drawing board. And they had no. art on the walls that was marked the Snow Queen, which became frozen. Yes, mm. I, this is the thing. Like, I'm, I, I, maybe I've been Mandela affected mm. into submission with this, but I'm convinced that Frozen was announced as the Snow Queen, and then uh, they changed the title point, along the there way. There was a point where they denied that it had ever been called that, but like it was. It might have been like a working. I I'm sure it was a working yeah. title. Yeah. yeah, but it was it was that period where they uh, basically any time they had a, a woman's name in the title, they changed all of them. After the princess Rapunzel. and the frog under underperformed at the box office, so Rapunzel becomes tangled. Really good. The Snow Queen becomes oh, frozen. Gosh. So basically, if it was a woman's name in the title, they changed it Ooh, to. I didn't a know word. that. Yeah, but somehow Wreck It Ralph was still totally fine to go ahead with a, with a character <gasps> name in the title. Misogyny at the Mouse House. Their whole thing with Tangled was well, it's more of a two-hander. It's not a thing. And I'm like, well, Wreck It Ralph is a two-hander if anything is. So are you going to change that mm. to you know, smashed? I mean, come on. So anyway. I still, Sweet. I still hold a grudge for that. I still, yeah. I still hold a slight grudge. Grudged, yeah. grudged. The Helen O'Hara story. <laughs> the Helen Disney film. <laughs> uh, yeah. So just real quick, I mean, I'm going to uh, just quickly infer the question a little bit because we've established that most, you know, franchises go off the rails after a couple of, or at least have some dodgy entries and mm. some, you know, uh, recover, and uh, they come back. What's the franchise that's been most consistent for you? And again, let's take the MCU off the discussion table <laughs> for the time being. That is a given. Beyond that's that, safe. what's that's, that's that's in the bank? <laughs> Your money is home. safe. Yeah, what, super smash I, and lovely great. What, what the that? fuck was that? If I if I hadn't already <laughs> I, 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 broken my, I feel my, like I should be offended. But I, I'm not I sure. feel I feel everyone in the world should be offended. <laughs> I don't know where that was meant to be. Uh, this is one of these things where that's that's me referencing Bullseye, having never ever watched Bullseye. Oh my god! So it's it's a vicarious impression. Ah, you're gorgeous. 
Anywho, <laughs> what's the most consistent franchise? What's the one that, that holds holds its end up, so to speak? Well, I recently rewatched for a reason I can't give, I can't explain, the entire Hunger Games franchise. I watched the first Those one Those are recently. fucking great films. So that's no, what, well, four well, films, three well, films? It's four. Four films needed to be three films. There is a point, and I mentioned this many times, there is a point in the first part of uh, Mockingjay where there's like a five-minute sequence where she is shining a red dot on a wall for a cat to chase it. It's like, you know that you are padding the runtime when you are just <laughs> having a cat bat at a red dot on a wall. It's like, fuck. No, it's not. One, it's not five minutes. I'm sure it and is. And two, it has meaning. It may be ten minutes. Oh, it's the subtext. This is subtext. The cat, yes. the cat is what? The cat is us? Like, what, what's the red it's dot? It's showing that she's a bit lost, right? Yeah, as it's is the franchise that she's at that making point. it dance. Like, she's having to dance. Dance, dance, dance. President's not. I'm not going into this. Yeah. The, the <laughs> Hunger Games films are all really good. They were radicalizing us long before Andor. Mm-hmm. Um, Jennifer Lawrence is excellent. I love are you them. radicalized? Look at her. I mean, are we not all radicalized? She's a new radical. Point? If you're in 2023 and you're not radicalized, I would suggest to you that you're not paying attention. I don't think <laughs> I'm radicalized. I think you need I'm, to try I'm kind of. I'm like. I'm chill. <laughs> Dude, I beg you to read a newspaper. <laughs> Yeah, actually, you know, I fucking hate newspapers. Let's bring them down. Wow, well, they see, that's the printed word. It's time for the <laughs> printed it. word to yeah. end. This is it. I'm yeah. radicalized. Thanks, Helen. Oh, if you want to have your question read out the Empire <laughs> Podcast, <laughs> I'm going to take an all journalists. If you want to have your question read out the Empire Podcast, you can get in touch with us. <laughs> I don't know whether Twitter's now a thing. It seemed to be broken last night. Oh God, yeah, it's oh, very God. hard to tell. TweetDeck seems to have gone. Anyway, Twitter is still limping along. So if you can read any of my tweets or can you can slide into my DMs, then I urge you strongly to do so with a question and we'll consider it for next week's show or next week's show even. My, the heat is destroying my mouth. It is so <laughs> hot in here. Shall we have a guest? Let's do it, yeah. please. Who do you want? Do you want M. Night Shyamalan, uh, director of Knock at the Cabin? Yes. Or do you want... Felix Kammerer, the star of All Quiet on the Western Front. I want to hear from Knight. All right. All right. Let's start with Knight. Knock at the Cabin <laughs> is the latest film from M. Night Shyamalan and has done pretty well at the box office in the in the States. I think it was the first movie to displace Avatar, The Way of Water, from the number one spot. So well done to that. No one saw that twist coming right and it opened last week, um, but because of episode 550, we weren't able to fit in this interview that Amon Warman, is he still behind me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so weird. By the way, Amon is in a, the studio adjacent to us at the moment, waiting to do an interview. Is he speaking? Is he doing he the interview right now? He's finished his interview, I believe. He's finished his interview. We yes. should have banged on the window and distracted him. Uh, and so he, Amon is behind me, but I can't see him at the moment. He may be entirely nude because it is so warm. I, I honestly don't know. But uh, I can't see Amon at the moment. But you will be able to hear Amon soon because he spoke to M. Night Shyamalan when he came into London recently. And he spoke about Knock at the Cabin, which, of course, is based on The Cabin at the End of the World, the book by Paul Tremblay, uh, which is a fantastic, fantastic book. And uh, I still haven't seen this movie yet, but reports are that it's his night's best since Split. I gave it four stars. Four stars. Four stars. Very much that thing. There we go. Four stars, says James Dyer at Emperor Magazine. And four stars for this Interview with Amon Warman and M. Night Shyamalan. Do please enjoy. Oh, I wonder what the twist is. Uh, we're delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the director and co-writer of Knock at the Cabin, Mr. M. Night Shyamalan. How are you, sir? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well here. Thank you. I know this is based on a novel. What are you thinking about how you might rewrite this and direct this as you were reading it that first time? Or did it only come in the days and weeks after you finished reading it? Um, it's a great question. You know, this was an unusual one. It came 
as a movie to me. And so mm. it was a bunch of, there was filmmakers involved, uh, two guys who wrote it and two guys who wanted to direct it. And they said, hey, would you produce this and kind of, you know, Godfather it. And I was looking at it, I, I thought the premise was incredible. And so I gave my thoughts on the story. I just felt like, you know, hey, I thought the story should go this way. And I kind of started riffing and I said, you know, in my mind, it should go this way as opposed to this way, but I wish you luck. And then mm. they went on and I, you know, I hope they, they did well with it. And then it naturally, some at some point didn't didn't happen. They went on did other movies and things like that. And then the book came back to me, um, the people that owned the book, and said, "Would you want? You can have it. Do mm. you want to do something with it?" And in fact, they kind of heard my pitch about what I thought should happen, and they said, "We agree with you. That's what we think should happen." <laughs> love that, love that. And the based based on the book, the book is called "The Cabin at the End of the World." Uh, why the title change? Did that, did that come for you? Yeah, because I just wanted to signal this is not a straight adaptation, uh, okay, gotcha. you know, so mm. this isn't one-to-one, you know, don't hold me to the things in the book. That's not a, at all. Mm. So just, hey, we're starting over. That was yeah. the source of inspiration. Okay. Um, just so everyone was had the right expectations. <laughs> yeah. This film, it mostly takes place in a single location in the cabin. I'm wondering, does that naturally inspire more out-of-the-box creativity from you when you're focused on that single location? Does that, does that inspire more from you when, when you have that single focus? I, I, feel, I feel that way. You know, mm. I have a kind of a feeling about creativity that it requires limitations, mm. um, that if you, you have four things to, to, to make something with, you can, there's an infinite kind of ways to balance each of them, and, and you can spend your time on the, the balance and how they're affecting each other. If we kind of have this mentality of uh, anything and excess, you know, it's, it, now it's like we have all, n- no limitation to anything we can do. My mind freezes, like I freeze from too much choice. Um, so, um, you know, the idea of that kind of, kind of um, giving you a very strict vocabulary as an audience member and then making you fluent in it is, mm. that excites me. One of the things that I think you're known for is that unpredictability, that sense of surprise. I'm wondering, do you ever try and sneak into screenings of your film and sort of experience that in 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 the moment? And do you have any sort of examples that really stick out to you? You know, I I think I did that in like the very early days. You know, uh, my my third movie, Sixth Sense, when that mm. that was actually my third movie was the f- first movie that was released internationally and was the first movie that was released nationally, really in all theaters. So in some ways, that was the first real wide release. Um, and so then I, I went in and I jumped in on a couple a couple screenings. And, but mm-hmm. that was different times, really, because nobody really knew who I was. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I could just sit right next to you and you wouldn't know who I was. <laughs> and, and it was fun there. And, I, and now I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the next movie and the next movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so my mind's already kind of moving. Like when I go home and land back in Philadelphia, yeah. I'm on to the next one. <laughs> mm, okay. That's interesting that you be sitting next to people. Would you participate in conversations with them as they're walking out as well, not knowing that you, or them not knowing that you directed it? Well, I, you know, uh, more I would be able to just take in, take in like what, how they were reacting. Like I remember, you know, and when I, back in the day when I could go sit, I could feel like they're where, where they were kind of connecting with the movie and when they would start, you know? Yeah. You know, one time I went to go see, um, a movie in the movie theater, I snuck in, you know, uh, this is not my movie. Okay. And I went and sat down in the corner. I actually went to see Hereditary in the movie theater yeah. and I snuck into the corner and I, I was waiting, you know, for everyone, the lights go down. And then the, the couple next to us turned over and was like, 
oh my God, we're gonna watch Hereditary with M. Night Shyamalan, this is amazing. <laughs> and they kept like looking over to see my reactions at every single moment. I was like, I can't focus if you didn't. <laughs> That's awesome, Hereditary is the scariest film. It's, so it's just like, I, it's not a film that I even enjoy thinking about. Just, <laughs> I, I tell people that I'm, I'm a scaredy cat. I tell people that it's the only movie that I give the rating of go to church the next day, get right with God after watching it. It, it, just, it freaks me out on that level. It's an incredible movie, but yeah. Um, you've spoken very inspiringly in the past about the need for risk-taking and not being afraid of failure yeah. when you're making movies, which I love. What was the biggest risk you took in making this movie, and was there any hesitancy on your part before committing to it? You know, I think, you know, the way I make movies for the last, you know, eight years, nine years on TV shows now um, is, you know, where I kind of make it outside the system, and I fund them myself, and then I, I, I bring it back to the system, and they distribute it. And that relationship has worked really well uh, for the primary reason that um, I feel, whether it's right or not, that I can take enormous risks and, and, uh, and not feel uh, the pressure of, you know, having to do something that the system is saying it's safer, you know. Um, so I can do something that's equally violent and, and beautiful you know like this movie and not be afraid that one's going to cancel out the other like that the horror fans are going to get freaked out by the beauty of it and the people that see the beauty are going to be traumatized beyond you know i can find that balance myself or if i wanted to i can hire a wrestler mm. an ex-wrestler <laughs> to do pages and pages and pages of monologue and give you know an incredibly dramatic performance and believe in that 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 that's the way to do this and um and 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 really approach any subjects that I want in, uh, in the film, um, even if they're sensitive. Speaking of Dave Bautista, I mean, it's a fantastic performance. And he's, he's been very vocal in the recent past about wanting to be taken more seriously as an actor. I think this is one of the roles that can help him do that. Um, the gentle giant nature of him, I feel like both of those aspects are at the fore of his performance, which is great. I'm wondering what had you seen from him that made you feel like he'd be right for the role and what sort of directorial notes were you giving him in order to coax out that work from him because it's a fantastic performance. Thank you, man. Yeah, I feel, I feel so proud and so happy for him. I was texting him. I keep texting him on the road from each country oh. <laughs> and telling him how well he did and how he's oh. being received. You know, sometimes I see um, something from an actor in, in, in a film and I go, hmm, they don't know that. But that, that's an incredibly complicated thing they just did. And they mm. did it instinctually. Um, I, I, what I d tell, you know, actors, especially children, you know, don't, don't do anything. You know, that's not, don't make your body do something or your face do something. Don't do that. Um, but think it. And mm. if you think the right thing, then the body will do what it's supposed to do and the face will do something beautiful, you know, in, in response to it. But you don't have to push it, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I saw Blade Runner 2049, there's a scene with Dave in it. And it, he has, it's, not, it's not very verbal, the scene. It's, it's physical. And he's standing there and he's still. And I was like, huh, whoever that guy is, I didn't know who he was. Um, he's incredibly in intricate in the way he's thinking. I was, it was very unusual. I saw his body language change and I was like, huh. And I was like, okay. so when I read this, I was like, can we find that guy from 2049 <laughs> and, and see what, what he's up to? And then mm -hmm. we, uh, we spoke and I could see he was ready. And by ready, I meant ready to fail. Mm -hmm. 
You know, he's not oh. he's not trying to protect himself, and he was completely vulnerable. Um, so it was very it's very easy, almost you know, like someone who like a child. You know, he was very easy to just talk about the character, and he's a, actually a very smart guy. Mm. So uh, you know, talking about the nuance, he's, he has a high EQ. He can feel himself when he's being inauthentic. Mm. It actually reminded me a little bit of some of your work with Bruce Willis mm. in terms of that similar, that stillness, mm, mm. that acting. Do you see any similarities between them yourself and what comes to mind when you think about your on-screen partnership with the great Bruce Willis? I mean, you know, it's interesting. I've never thought of it. I, I, I actually, I, it, it resonates what you're saying, that, mm. that they have a similar uh, cadence. And, and I think both of them, you know, Dave and, and Bruce, um, are, were known for their physicality and charm and humor mm. and and asked me to do something else with them you mm. know wanted wanted to 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 be stilled and um you know Bruce's you know big brother and you know you know I owe him everything so uh very very close to him and and his family um I know you like to work with new collaborators from film to film and I wanted to ask about the composer cuz I'm I'm a, I'm a huge film film score for music uh, and Heard this Stefan's daughter, I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, her music really stood out to me. What made you think of her for this film and what sort of discussions were you having with her about the musical storytelling this film needed? So this would be an example of, you know, not being in the system and being able to take risks. And, mm. um, you know, I, I was, I, I like to work with new collaborators to, to keep me, you know, beginner again and mm -hmm. to think new again so I don't try to protect myself. And Herdis, who uh, is a composer from Iceland, um, uh, a young woman who's really, really talented but hasn't done much. And I heard her music from a TV show um, that she did. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> this is really, really unique and interesting. And it just kind of felt, felt like it spoke to me a little bit. So I, I started talking to her and I found her very, very complicated and, and beautiful in her thinking. And so I said, let's take a risk. So. <laughs> Uh, we went for it, and boy, did she she give a very singular thing as she started sending music. It was like this old school Bernard Herrmann mm -hmm. female 2023 version of <laughs> of an old score. It was it was yeah. so beautiful that she intuited from me that I was doing kind of an old school approach to a thriller, and she just went with it. Uh, final question for you. Uh, this is one very much for me because I'm a big NBA fan, as I know that you are as well. And I loved your tie-in promo that you did with James Harden, by the way. That was great. But it made me curious, have you ever considered doing a basketball film? Yeah, of course. How, how, uh, how, close, how close have you come to uh, You know, I love basketball. Basketball is mm -hmm. my, my other passion. So mm -hmm. I have two ACL surgeries from basketball. I, oh, play, wow. I play all the time. Mm. Um, my guys that I'm going to play with, you know, they're going to kill me that when I come back because I haven't been playing. I've been on the road. So <laughs> it's not fair, by the way. They've been practicing and I've been in hotel rooms. Um, and, you know, it just for me is, is a meditation for me, uh, mm. playing basketball. Um, you know, I haven't thought of a kind of a thriller or something that, that's related to, to basketball, but I, I do enjoy the any movies that are done on, on the subject. I'm just saying basketball, sports in general, but basketball uh, is a 
sport that lends itself to twists. That's true. And, you know, you're the guy, you're the guy who does twists. So I'm just saying, cool, like, and what would be a bigger twist than Philly winning the NBA finals in the NFL? Well, I think that's kind of expected. That's going to be, <laughs> I, I think you heard that's it here first. We're going to win that. We're going to win the Super Bowl and the NBA championship this year. Wow. Yeah, that's, back that's, to back. <laughs> that's big talk. I, w- <laughs> I wish you well. I'm not sure that's going to happen, especially on basketball. I, I wish you well. Uh, you now never. you're going to have to play this, this interview back. <laughs> I'll eat my words happily <laughs> if it comes to fast. Uh, M. Night, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, pleasure. Thank you. Okay, that was M. Night Shyamalan talking to Amon Warman. And Knock at the Cabin is out right now in all good, evil, and not virtual cinemas. Shall we talk about movie news? So we talked a little bit about the the Disney announcements. We did, yeah. The likes of Frozen 3, which, as I say, I'm surprised it's taken them so long to get around to this. So Tropolopia uh, is two and a fifth Toy Story the fifth Toy Story is the one that seems to have had people on Twitter kind of rolling their eyes a little bit. Well, so the fourth Toy Story was incredibly boring. So that's, I think that's very funny. harsh. It was it was okay. If it was just a film, you might have been like, "That was a really good film." But compared to the three pretty yeah. much perfect Toy Stories that preceded it, it was okay. Here's 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 a controversial statement. I'm not that wild about Toy Story one. That is not just controversial. That's just stupid. <laughs> yeah, just I don't. Difficult. I don't know why. And I think I was at the time, but I've gone properly off Toy Story one, and now I'm all about Toy Story three. I mean, look, no argument. Toy Story three, yeah. but you're still wrong. Fair enough. It's, it's. I rewatched Toy Story one before Lightyear, mm. um, and it is. It's very thin. Like it's very light. It is. There's not a lot to it. Which and that was like a real key film from my childhood. I think I remember it being bigger and amazing and i watched it and i was like this is lovely but it's quite do you know what, it's that's, a lot smaller in scale than i remember right? yeah. yeah that's the first film i remember going to see and think look they've made this whole film with the cgis yeah like, and being all like oh this is so clever well i mean it was <laughs> yeah but it's also a great piece of storytelling i'm surprised that you would disavow that one in particular given the uh screenwriter thereon. <sighs> it does pain me mm. it does pain there we go me. but uh no i still think i think they're all great i look i i you know, do we need a fifth Toy Story on paper? No. But do I hope that that studio will come up with something extraordinary that justifies its existence? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I'm still very, very optimistic for it. Frozen kind of feels like, given it is a fantasy, it feels like a trilogy is the classic fantasy structure. It feels like it should be almost a trilogy. And um, mm-hmm. that makes sense to me. that The last film's ending did not feel like a very definitive ending to me, actually. So I'm totally here for a third Frozen. I think that makes a sort of weird sense. And Morzutropolitopius, yeah, cool. Because, you know, those are fun characters. They had a lot of good jokes. If they can kind of keep up the quality, then fine. Mm. And it has a foxy leading man. So. And it does have a very foxy leading man. One of the sort of disturbingly sexy foxy foxes of animation, along <laughs> with Robin Hood. Um, so, like, it's fine that they're they're doing all these things. I do beg Hollywood, please to also make some freaking original material because you cannot just rely on, you know, recycling stuff that you already know that we love. Please, for the love of God. So Utopiopolis is, is original material. Like, well, it, you know, yeah, but it's, it's not like, anymore. It's a it's lesson a, to be learned. Yeah, from, absolutely. From... Absolutely. And it made it made a billion dollars and now you are making a sequel to it. See what can happen with original films? Mm. Um, I mean, you know, they kind of dumped Lightyear and Strange Worlds to an extent. I, they didn't feel like you know, big events that people had to go and see. Yeah. Um I Strange think the definitely. I think the 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 tactic of of putting everything on Disney Plus quite so quickly 
created an expectation that there was no need to go to the cinema for those films because you'd see them in a minute anyway. And it really, really hurt the box office. Um, so, but, but that doesn't have to be the case with every original film. For the love of God, give us original films too. Feels like more of an acute problem with children's film as well, that streaming thing, mm -hmm. because it's so much more expensive to take kids to the cinema because the volume yeah. of people you're more likely taking you at the time course, is yeah. Yeah. very, very pricey. And the Disney subscription is, you know, a lot cheaper by comparison. I, I, but I think, you know, that's also why, you know, kids' films make so much money. That's why there's yeah. been so many millions that minions. That's why I mean, very mildest of spoilers, but in Puss in Boots there are suggestions that another Shrek might be on the horizon. That's God help because, us all. You know, I, it's honestly, still a potent brand name. I don't want to spoil Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, but uh, I, I, I had a weird little tingle of warmth towards the end of that movie. At that suggestion. At that suggestion, <laughs> which completely and utterly to me by surprise. It was just like, oh, wow, yeah, I'd quite like to see those characters again. I'd quite like to see another Shrek. That'd be great. You know, and Puss in Boots is, is a really, really great film. It but is, also the, yeah. the DreamWorks Animation logo now, you know, is a, is a kind of trawl through yeah. all their major characters. And it ends with Shrek and Fiona and Donkey. And so I think they're very much going, you know, this franchise, yeah. which began the whole thing, is very, very much at the forefront of our thoughts. I'd watch a Donkey and Dragon film, but I don't need Shrek <laughs> again. I'd watch a Shrek film. Those yeah. films were huge for me when they came out. I'm always here for Shrek. I mean, I'll obviously watch it, but it's not my personal favorite. More How to Train Your Dragon. Hurrah! Yes. Apparently there's a How to Train Your Dragon live action. Is that? Being, being talked that about. Yeah, but I believe there was a hiccup. Hey. <laughs> hey! Oh, that was, that was uh, good. joke was too toothless. Oh, hey, hey! <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Uh, anyway, yes. To conclude, more original films, please, Hollywood. Yes. Uh, I know what you did last summer. Three is currently being developed in in shocking and uh, uh, unexpected Hewitt news. Jennifer Love Hewitt and Freddie Prince Jr. Uh, are in talks to reprise their characters, and we all can remember what they were called from the first two. <laughs> I know what you did last summer movies. I know what you did last summer. And I still know what you did last summer. What's it going to be now? I know what you did 20 years yeah. ago. Apparently there was a third one, but I never there, saw it, but yeah. it didn't have those two in it. So I vaguely uh, yeah. remember what you did last summer. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays it will be. It's <laughs> like, I can't remember, remember what I did yesterday, <laughs> let alone what I did last summer. And admittedly, if I had run over a, a fisherman and... <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then he'd come back and killed all my friends. Yes. It might stick in the memory. It might lodge. So, so, you know, we mentioned Freddie Prince Jr., who is obviously married to Sarah Michelle Gellar, who is in Wolfpack, which mm -hmm. is a new show, which is on Paramount+. Plus. There is genuinely a thing in that where uh, a bunch of kids on a school bus get killed by werewolves while there's a forest fire going on, don't ask. And then one of the kids goes back to her dad and they then have an argument about swearing. And at no point does she think to mention the first thing that should have been on her mind, which is, Oh, by the way, Dad, I just watched my entire class get killed by werewolves. Doesn't even factor in. They just talk about swearing. That does seem a little odd. It's insane. It's what a bunch in of muddy funsters. Insane. It is insane. Uh, anyway, I know what you did last summer, which of course also starred Sarah Michelle Gellar, is uh, going to be refamped by Jennifer Caton Robinson, who was co-writer with Taika Waititi on Thor: Love and Thunder, and directed Do Revenge. I don't do. Co <laughs> yeah. 
fun film. <laughs> Do Revenge was super fun. Really fun. Yeah, mm. and and showed a real grasp of like, you know, and, and an awareness of the genre and the classics of the genre and the, the ways you could play with it and update it and change it up. Yeah. And so if she can bring that to, like, let's be honest, a mid-tier slasher, um, then I think there's a lot of fun to be had here. Because I think this is something we've talked about before, right? If you're going to reboot something, don't reboot the nailed or remake the nailed on mm -hmm. classics mm -hmm. remake the stuff where there's a let's be honest room for improvement so this seems kind of ideal to me anyone else got any other bits of movie news that you want to talk about i mean there is a metric shit ton of tv news but i will be saving that for the other podcast oh, please please do please yeah. please I am, I am most interested in the rom-com that's going to star andy samberg and mm. gene smart Yes. Where, so I think Andy Samberg was cry is cryogenically frozen for forty two point six oh, years. I do not do cryogenically frozen at the moment. Oh yeah, um, and then wakes up to find his girlfriend is obviously forty two years older, played by Jane Smart. Mm -hmm. I love those two actors. Yeah, very very much. I'm not sure is she actually. I mean, presumably his girlfriend's younger than him to begin with. I think she. I don't feel like she's forty two years older than Andy Samberg, is she? No, but she when he wakes up after forty two years of being frozen, she has aged because she. No, I get frozen. that. I get that. But what I'm saying is there isn't a forty two year age gap right now, so I feel like she's younger than him to begin with. And then mm. is oh, in wakes the actors, right, obviously, yeah, if Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio had been frozen, he'd have woken up and they'd been the same age. So yes. <laughs> yeah, I think hey. it's. I think this is fun. Look, it comes from uh, Craig Gillespie. Yeah, yes. who did good stuff with, with Cruella most recently. Not to be confused with Jim Gillespie, who directed I Know What You Did Last Summer. Whoa! <laughs> two Hewitts, circle. two Gillespies. <laughs> <laughs> this is an incredible week. No waiting. Yeah, <laughs> very exciting. Very. Yeah, I'm. I'm excited about this. Um, I have nothing more to say beyond that. Yeah, I, yeah, I love Palm Springs. Andy Samberg's mm. great. It sounds like a really, really high concept. Yeah, count me in. And also, I'd be intrigued to see where you guys come down in this because count me in, speaking of high concept comedies, for Strays, oh. which is the <laughs> brand new movie in which Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx voice two lovable stray dogs who oh. have to travel across the country to be reunited with Will Ferrell's owner, played by Will Forte. Oh. And it's all lovely and, you know, heartwarming, but this is. Absolutely batshit insane R rated nonsense. Uh, so the dogs are swearing and shagging and, and all sorts of stuff. And it's produced by Lord and Miller and directed by Josh Greenbaum, who directed Barb and Star go to Fist at Del Mar. And this seems just as yes. insane. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Having said that, the trailer wasn't making me laugh a ton, but those people involved, yes, please. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, have you seen anyone? Has anyone seen the trailer? Sophie, yeah. you, you must have seen the trailer. Yeah, we ran a trailer breakdown on this yesterday, actually, where we talked to Josh Greenbaum about it. Um, yeah, it looks really fun. The quality <laughs> of CGI on the dogs. Do you do a trailer breakdown for that film? <laughs> You'll have to read it and find out. <laughs> um, the CGI looks so good. Like the dogs. So hang on, look. Are the dogs all CG? Well, it's like or is it's like Lion like... King live so, action so there, animals, right? Like, what no actual dogs in the film? I I don't. So who I, left the dogs out? Oh no! Who oh, let the dogs out? <laughs> Isn't it? Look, in my games? defense, it's like 150 <laughs> degrees in here. I'll beat him I in one like... second. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's hang on, hang I'd, on. So okay. all the dogs are CG because I just assumed it was just like you know. Think about this. Think about this. Like one take CG dog, a thousand takes trying to get a dog to you know act. It do, it 
one take is super reductive for CG dogs. That's that my is, understanding. My wow. understanding is that the visual effects people, they press the dog-shaped button and a CG oh, dog appears on the screen. That's what happens. <laughs> You're barking, know. mate. You don't understand how much every single VFX artist listening to this just cringe. <laughs> what? Just, just, oh boy. Is it not a dog-shaped button? Did they not have the pedigree, John, <laughs> for that? <laughs> no. What if they get nominated? They might win a lot. <laughs> There's a chappy joke, but I'm just far too tired to make it. <laughs> chappy do CG dog? <laughs> <laughs> it's so hot I'm gonna die Cheppy render effects in real time <laughs> oh they do use Unreal Engine nowadays so you know it's getting closer oh, well. there you go mm. beat the uncanny valley Chappy you can do it <laughs> anyway looks good anything else uh, I'm so 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 hot don't make me bring up the La La Land thing yes, yes! that's right Ooh, Helen yes woohoo Yes, they you are, are an enemy of joy. That film is is like sunshine in a bottle. They are turning La La Land you into say music. Another day of sun. Like if it yeah. had any actual currency, you would have said it's another day of sun. But no, you know why you didn't stick in your head. I mean that's fair. But the titles of songs didn't stick in your head. I mean that's fair. But the titles of songs stick in your head. As long as the song sticks in your head, I would argue that's all you need. And that song is a belter. It did for a while because Terry insisted on playing the soundtrack. I was listening. I was. I was thinking about La La Land as I'm frequently wont to do, and it's interesting. This is going to be interesting. So they're turning La La Land into a musical. Cue Helen going. Oh, I thought you were going to say something along the lines of, "Oh, now they're turning La La Land into a musical." They should have done years ago. But it is interesting because obviously, you know, they had to get around the fact that Ryan Gosling, the, you know, the baby goose, has got many, many qualities, many, many virtues. Singing perhaps isn't one of them. So they had to, like, he doesn't sing that much in the soundtrack to that movie. Emma Stone, not a trained singer, sings more than he does, but not as much. I mean, the opening, what, the opening two numbers of that movie don't really feature the leads at all, uh, which is, I've, I've always found, found interesting. Clearly, for a musical, they're going to introduce mm. new songs, or I presume Justin Hurwitz, who is Damien Chazelle's longtime composer, and the guy who wrote the songs. Uh, you know, Pasek and Paul wrote the lyrics for those songs, but... Uh, he wrote the music, which is, of course, why the songs are so much better for La La Land than anything Pasek and Paul have written. Um, oh. But <laughs> you search your feelings, you know it to be true. Um, but, you know, I, they're going to have to come up with more songs for the names of Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone's characters, who I totally know. <laughs> but I'm excited about this. I, I, I love that film, as you may well know. Helen does not love that film. As you may well know, it's um, it's a one-hander masquerade. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. There we go. There we go, folks. There we go. You know why? Because it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Viola Davis got an egot. She did get an egot. I see, and I would never, ever, ever want to in any way besmirch Viola Davis or take anything away from her, not least because she was. It still counts. Look. It's like winning an Oscar for short film or something. Like it still yeah. counts. Look, Fisher Stevens has an Oscar for short film. <laughs> this is amazing. So I'm looking at the EGOT page on uh, Wikipedia. EGOT mail. The EGOT. You've just found where it came from. Yes, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> the EGOT acronym was coined by actor Philip Michael Thomas in late 1984 when his role on the new hit show Miami Vice brought him instant fame, and he stated a desire to achieve the EGOT within five years. 
Thomas has never been nominated for any of the four awards. Is the very next sentence. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. That is cruel. That is so cruel. Uh, anyway, there have been... She's the 18th, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The 18th E-Gotter. Uh, let's have a little impromptu quiz. I really enjoy these impromptu quizzes on oh, the God. Empire oh, podcast. God. I'm going to be terrible at this. Can anyone name any of the other E-Gotters? John Legend. Correct. Jennifer yes. Hudson. I suspect Helen has read up on this and has an unfair advantage. <laughs> I have in the past read the list, if that's what you want. Uh-huh. I think Miranda's still one short. Um, what, yeah. from the BBC sitcom? <laughs> no. Oh, oh man, well, well, yeah. oh, <laughs> pilot TV humour, how I enjoy it. <laughs> oh, that's not cinematic TV. You wouldn't, even, you wouldn't give that the time of day. Uh, no, no, Miranda, Lin- Linny Manny is not He's one on the list. He's yeah. one short, the loser. Uh... <laughs> Hang Perhaps on. if he released an audiobook, he could get it. Perhaps if he didn't throw away his shot. <laughs> if he was in the room where it happened. Is it the Grammy that he shot? Sorry? Is hey, it the Grammy that he shot? That's an accurate reference. Is it the Grammy that he shot? Like no, Lin-Manuel, it's, the, it's it? the Oscar. It's the Oscar. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. He's, he got everything else. Yeah, he's got everything else. Yeah. All right. Oh, um, right. Helen Mirren is uh, a Grammy short. I've, I actually genuinely suggested to her that she should do an audiobook. She's, she counted with a rap album. Montana you were saying later. Women versus Hollywood is available, Helen Mirren. It's, it's already read <laughs> yeah, by I Helen. I did that, yeah. I know, but you know. Yeah, honestly, if Helen Mirren wanted to do it, I would have let her. <laughs> yeah. like, she is yeah. in many ways a better Helen. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not going to argue with <laughs> It's like saying James Cameron is a better James. It's like, duh. I mean, is he no? I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I, I'll give you some, put you out of your misery and the listeners as well. So going backwards in order of egottery, uh, Viola Davis, mm-hmm. Jennifer Hudson, Alan Menken. Yeah, I've said all three of these. John Legend. <laughs> I've said all four of those. Tim Rice. Yes. And Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh-huh. Really? Of course, they go hand yeah. in hand, don't they? Robert Lopez. Yeah. Because uh, Frozen, mm-hmm. mostly. And Book of Mormon. And Book of Mormon. Yeah. Mostly Frozen. But yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Scott Rudin. Whippy Goldberg. Said it. Mike Nichols. Oh, I forgot. Mm. I just read the book as well. It's a fantastic book. Mel Brooks. Yes, deserved. (laughs) Congratulations if anyone knows who this person is. Jonathan Tunick. American orchestrator, musical director and composer Jonathan Tunick, born 1938, received his fourth distinct award in 1997. Between 1977 and 1997, Tunick received a total of four awards. He won Academy Award for the best um, music Best score for A Little Night Music. He won an Emmy for Outstanding Achievement in Music Direction for Night of 100 Stars in 1982. He won Best Instrumental Arrangement Accompanying Vocals. My God, the categories of the Grammys are ridiculous. Um, also, like, I don't understand. Like, there's Album of the Year and Record of the Year, right? I mean, it's just, it's nonsense. What, what it's that? a nonsense. Yeah, because yeah. Lizzo won one and Harry Styles won the other yeah. and Beyonce won neither. And so if you're like, a young person, oh, what is the difference? I don't know the difference. I'm not up on the Grammys. down your whole generation. Yeah. Not up on the grammar of the Grammys. But like Ben, well, yeah, Ben. These weirdness. Do you remember the, the Simpsons made fun of this? When, when Homer, so many Homer won, yeah, when Homer won Best Barbershop Quartet or whatever. Yeah. And he tips the bellhop, his Grammy, oh, a Grammy, and throws it away. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Because there are so, so many, many categories. categories. Yeah. <laughs> Frankly, none of us have any Grammys and we are letting the side down. We should have Grammys by now. Marvin Hamlish, Audrey Hepburn, John Gilgood, Rita Moreno, mm. Helen Hayes, yep. not O'Hara. Give it and time. Richard a lot of time. 
Rogers. You've got the audiobook already. <laughs> of Rogers and Hammerstein fame. Mm. So there you go. The man who co-wrote You'll Never Walk Alone was the very first E-Godder. <sighs> and as Denzel might say, E-God game. <laughs> would he though? He would. He, he Believe me. Trust me. If I know Denzel like I think I know Denzel, he would say <laughs> E-God game. So well done to Fayola Davis. Yay. Woo. Applause. Woo. Very, very, very well deserved. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so hot and tired. I can't even be bothered applauding. I'm uh, so I think that's there. it for movie news unless there's anything else. Uh, yeah, you know, Earth's being consumed in a fireball. <laughs> yes, please. Genuinely, I feel like the elk in knowing Bring it at on. this point. <laughs> yes. Bring it on. Uh, all right. Time for our second and final guest this week. And it is Felix Kamera, who is the Austrian star of the BAFTA and Oscar nominated movie. All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, which is a German language adaptation of the classic novel and set in the trenches of World War One, And it is a, a, a fissurating look at war. Apparently, war not great. What is it good for? What is it Absolutely good for? Absolutely nothing. nothing. War, it's not fantastic. Uh, so uh, Felix is in town at the moment right now because the interview happened today. I was there for it. I pressed record on this. Ian Freer went along and talked to Felix Kammerer and uh, they had a good old chat about that movie, which is up for Best Picture at the Baptist. In fact, has more nominations this week than any other film in the Baptist, 14 of them. Whether it wins or not remains to be seen, but we shall see. Here is Felix Kammerer. Do please enjoy. Felix Kammerer, welcome to the Empire Podcast. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. How are you? Bro, I'm very well, thank you. Uh, we're here to talk all things All Quiet on the Western Front, which is up for 14 BAFTA nominations, nine Oscar nominations. How do you feel about awards? Are they? Do you see the sense in awards? How do you feel about them? It's, uh, first of all, it's really just, it's unbelievable. Um, it. This this has been my my very first um, my very first time working on on a movie and and being in front of a camera. So um, it's it's all new to me. This whole industry um, way of working, the the production, and now to see this movie, my 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 first baby, <laughs> to see it grow to to this extent, to this um, proportion of all these nominations and awards yeah. uh, it already uh, already won um it's it's enormous yeah. i really can't i i can't really understand what's happening <laughs> it's it's weird i mean it's a the character's journey paul baum is your character and he's a kind of rookie recruit who's sent to the front line and that's a, at the western front and that's just a, an amazing arc for a character isn't it to start as this young innocent and then to end up where he ends up yeah giving it away uh <laughs> As a first thing to do, that's amazing, isn't it? That's just a real stretch. It is. Um, luckily, um, so I, I'm 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 used to work in theatre. Yeah, and um, that's pretty much the same. You always prepare for a, a very long arc, a very long uh, journey of a character. The difference is in theatre, you play it from beginning to end. Yeah, there's no interruption. <laughs> yeah, and. I I think that might have helped me in in preparing for this character um because it was like playing a theater play just in a lot yeah. of different pieces but all I, around I, I read that you have a uh, uh, an Excel spreadsheet oh, yeah. of your characters, <laughs> where your character is on their journey. So tell me about that, because you don't shoot a film in order, do you? You shoot a film out of order. Yes. So I think one of the very first scenes you shot was in the courtyard. I think it was, was that day four, I think, 
Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. And then that's towards the end of the film where you've had the journey. Yeah. So how is that? How was that process? And tell me about your spreadsheet. Um, I knew very early in the preparation time that I I had to come up with a system because, like I said, I don't know how to work unchronologically. Yeah. And um, maybe out of despair, I came up with this <laughs> with this Excel system because I'm. <laughs> I'm quite logic. I like working in a in a maybe even mathematical way. Yeah. And um, then I came up with a system of this Excel spreadsheet that um, it has different categories um, connected to each scene, and each category has different levels of energy. Okay. And um, in the end, when you you put a number of energy to each category and to each scene, you come up with somehow a graph or of the development of the character. Okay. And it looks like a tax refund <laughs> sheet. <laughs> You're like an accountant rather than an actor. Yeah, yeah. I am pretty much an, an accountant for, for a character. <laughs> okay. uh, and uh, that's really helpful because when you start your day, you are driving to set and you can look on the sheet and you know we're doing scene 25. And the different categories and levels of energy are at this and this stage. And then you can just turn your little knobs yeah. uh, of your of your machine <laughs> and get going. So what, what do you remember as a scene that was a 10 or an 11, whatever, whatever the high point of it is? What, what, what scene do you remember as being that? So the, um, the different... On the main on the main sheet, the my, my main working sheet, it was uh, the categories were... Uh, will or urge to kill, uh, fear of death. Okay. And there was another category for pulse. And the pulse was the, the number, the, the real pulse number. So it went from, I think, 30 or 40 up to 180 or 200. And the other levels had numbers from zero to 100. And I think the highest one it's the only time all three categories peak at their highest levels is um, the moment in the pit yeah. with the French soldier. Yeah, there's a scene where Paul's in a crater with a French soldier and he tries to kill him, then he has doubts about that, doesn't he? Exactly, he, yeah. he regrets it and he tries to help the soldier and um, of yeah. course it doesn't work and... Um, He's he's just really ashamed about this, so um, I think that's that's the only moment where all the categories peak um, because Paul peaks at this point, and it's a turning point for him. Um, and I think that what I really loved is um, coincidences that happen with that sheet because when I, when I um, worked on other categories for other sheets for this project, I just uh, change the names, but I left the numbers how they were to change them later, and suddenly patterns appear, um, which you would have never thought of. Yeah. Um, suddenly you see, oh, that's interesting. Let's try playing it. That um, in this scene where I expected the energy to be very high, suddenly it says the the fear is very low, and it seems counterintuitive. Yeah. But strangely you come up with ideas that are so um so good so 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 interesting mm. 
And if you think about it and you develop the character upon those new, in these new, um, maybe like, uh, you know, you, uh, how do you say it? it's a, it's a, a miracle. Like it yeah, comes yeah. from nowhere. Yeah. It's, it's an incident. And, um, suddenly really, um, fresh ideas come yeah. up. I love this approach. I don't think I've ever spoken about spreadsheets so much in an Empire interview. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. One thing about that crater scene that, that absolutely stuck with me is your makeup. Oh, yeah. You've got this kind of half green face. Tell me about the, the use of makeup and mud in this film. You're covered in mud for 98% of this film. How, how was that? Uh, it's, it's funny that you, you mention right this, this, this moment right away because it's, it's actually, I think, the one makeup moment that was unintentionally okay uh, so we started we we shot this scene for two days and um two complete days which was a very long time because we were we had quite a hustle we had not a lot of time to shoot the movie and two complete days for a scene with just two people in it yeah um it was it was really a <laughs> it was a journey <laughs> and um so the director Edward Berger, on the very first um, day, I think it was the the second uh, setup we shot, he told me to really hide. It was the moment when Paul dives into this crater and he tries to hide from the French soldiers yeah. that are running around him, and he really tries to hide. And I pressed my face into the mud to hide. And it was real mud and it was real water and real stones. And after another four hours or five hours of shooting, this face, this elephant skin appeared. Yeah. And we really loved that. We loved the look of this two-faced character, which yeah, yeah, yeah. is like a symbol for this moment. Okay. It's the, the, the two-faced guy, you know, it's the, the shame, but at the same time, it's the, you have guilt and, uh, and and urge to kill and he's he's pushed between his his points of view he needs to kill but he doesn't want to yeah he's forced to but um at some point something in him drives him there yeah um so the two faces were a really good um embodiment of of this moment in a moment yeah so on the next day, I came to do the makeup truck <laughs> and I saw the faces of, of the people there and they were just in in panic because they saw the pictures from the day before. So they got the continuity pictures. Of and they, course, they yeah, they to needed and... to recreate it, yeah, but yeah, they yeah. did not know how. And they tried with glue and um, makeup and in the end, it just didn't work out. So we had to come, they, they brought little little buckets with mud and earth and water from the set, from the actual battlefield, and just punched it in my face. Um, you didn't try just pushing your face in the ground again. Just try, do the same again. We should have tried that. Maybe that's... <laughs> do my own breakdown. <laughs> and it just looks... Just as a shoe, it looks hellish. How, how tough... Was it really super tough? It looks it. It was, yeah. yeah. I mean, I could uh, tell a thousand stories, but in the end, it it really was just what you see. It we had about, um, I think, just between four and six degrees Celsius every day. It was wet every day. If it was dry for one day, 
they yeah. came with huge hoses and <laughs> made everything wet again. Um, those those um, uniforms of wool, aren't they? They're heavy uniforms, oh aren't they? Yeah. It, it's unbelievable. They they are made of felt, right. um, the original material, and they are the original cuts. So it's all original, more or less, and you have the equipment that's made of metal, and you have a real steel helmet, and um, the costume sucks up the water, and the mud sticks to it, and the boots fill up with water. They, I'm, after the shooting day, we could just pour the water out of our shoes, our, um, yeah, uh, boots. Boots, yeah. And um, so in the end, we, I think after it was was after the first week of shooting, we weighed the costumes, and they weighed uh, about ninety pounds. And then you realize you're running around for sixteen hours a day with ninety pounds. <laughs> of costume on your shoulders knee deep yeah. in the mud and then you're trying to act <laughs> <laughs> isn't it the thing with movies that you have millions of the same costume you must have oh, tons yeah. of uniforms like um my, our costume designer lizzie crystal she told me just for paul i think it was around 25 different costumes yeah. in different stages so you start with the clean very neat yeah. one yeah and you end with the absolutely broken down ones yeah. And in between, you have a lot of different stages. And of course, you have the ones with frost on it, because yeah. obviously there was no frost on us because it would have melted. But you have ones with frost on it, the ones that have blood on it, the ones that have <laughs> mud on it. Then you have the very clean ones and you're lucky for a day. And then you go back to the mud <laughs> the, again. They're the good days, aren't yeah. they? When you have the clean uniform. <laughs> I think that was one of the most beautiful day when we were shooting the school scenes. Just <laughs> everyone was looking like in Peaky Blinders, very <laughs> cool, stylish. Yeah. It was dry. It was quite warm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and on the next day, go back to the mud. <laughs> yeah. Also, you're only getting like three or four hours of sleep at night. Oh, yeah. was, that, was that just because there were so long days? Or that was like panic about what was happening? What was happening? It's mostly just the, the shooting schedule because right. you you shoot for about 16 hours a day. And you have to go back home again, too. It took about an hour to yeah. go from set to the place where we were living. And um, so you arrive home, I think, about nine o'clock in the evening, maybe 10. Yeah. And then you can't just go to bed. You yeah. really can't. It's like after performance. You, yeah. you need to cool down and to, you know, reflect on what has happened on that day. And most most of the days were quite hard so <laughs> yeah. emotionally. So you really have to deal what, with what just happened. And you also want to prepare for the next day because yeah. maybe something you did today will change the way you're acting the next day. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fluid system and you have to adapt to that. And um, then you go to sleep maybe at 11, 12, and in the next morning, you are picked up at four o'clock in the morning, four thirty, to be in makeup at five thirty, yeah. because you want to start shooting uh, at sunrise, and then you do it all over again for three and a half months. Man alive! <laughs> <laughs> when Steven Soderbergh won his, he won a, uh, the Palme d'Or award for his very first film, Sex Lies and Videotape. Yeah, and he said, uh, "Well, it's all downhill from here." 
Uh, I wonder if you're, when you're thinking about what's next, is it difficult? How are you going to top this? How does it, where does it go from here? It's tough, isn't it? Oh, please don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. I yeah. have no idea. But luckily, um, I'm, I'm really not, I'm not aiming for awards. No. And I'm not aiming for recognition or um, fame. And um, that, it, it feels so relaxing to know I'm just about good projects. And when friends ask me, so what project could you possibly do after that one? Because it, the next one can only be smaller or different or, you know, the experience of the very first project will never be reappeared, will never be the same. So I, I don't care. I just want to do good projects. And if it's a very, very small independent project, so it will be. But yeah. um, if it's a good one and I'm in for it, there's no problem with that. Yeah. That's the other thing. The great thing about awards is that they shine a light on, on, the, on the movie, don't they? That's, that's the great thing. Because yeah. really, if you win, it doesn't make the film any better. <laughs> if you lose, it doesn't make the film any worse. Yeah, exactly. So it's just nice that it's just got, got its time in the sun and that much so many more people would have watched it because of those nominations yeah that's fair it's like it's always in the top 10 in netflix these days and that's lovely for a two and a half hour german film yeah it absolutely is and um it's especially it's i what i always have to think of is the huge honor and the miracle that this movie is the very first german movie ever to be nominated for a best picture at the oscars and um that's something uh that's I think that can't be topped for us, and that's uh, yeah. the biggest, the biggest gift. Yeah, and so you, you, you kind of had a background in theatre. When did you, did you love movies? Did you did you grow up loving movies and watching movies, or were you are you a theatre person? I'm really much a theatre person, okay. but I have started loving movies and making movies just over the last two two and a half years. Right. So um, that's probably something I want to <laughs> to uh, start going on now. Good in, this, cause, in cause the future. I read somewhere that you you were planning to go back to theatre, and my advice is don't stay with film. <laughs> well, uh, film is much more exciting than theatre. So please, for for the, for the love of cinema, stay in stay in film. I, I will I will have a thought about it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Felix Camera, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Okay, so that was Felix Kammerer, the star of All Quiet on the Western Front, which is available to watch on Netflix, of course, and is going to be one of the frontrunners at this weekend's BAFTAs. Very, very interesting indeed. 14 nominations. I wonder how many it will win. Anyway, if you are detecting with your eagle ears that I sound very, very different, it's because the heat melted our computer yesterday and uh, took a great big chunk out of the podcast in doing so. Uh, ain't technology grand. And so we have reconvened the following morning. It is now Friday, the 10th of February. Uh, we've reconvened in the virtual pod booth. Helen's here. Hello, Helen. Hello. James is here. Hi. I'm actually really cold now. Oh, my God. You're never happy. Uh, we've, Sophie, gone, we've gone from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Sophie is here as well. Hello, Sophie. Hello, I've decided to recreate the conditions of yesterday because the radiator in my room is still broken and operating at full temperature and it's oh actually quite warm today. So I've decided to recreate the sweltering conditions of yesterday. And you're from the north, so I imagine anything above 15 degrees is, is too yeah, much for you. I'm, yeah, I'm suffering. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So uh, so the, um, the computer ate the entire review section. 
which is which is nice. So uh, we've got a few films to talk about. Before we do, um, some breaking news that happened yesterday, some very, very sad news, is that Burt Bacharach passed mm-hmm. away at the age of 94, the great Burt Bacharach, one of the greatest composers of pop songs that there has ever lived, won a number of Oscars uh, uh, for some incredible songs, um, some of which we discussed on our, our recent ranking episode, which is totally up as a podcast, shut up, and... Uh, you know, including obviously raindrops keep falling on my head. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my personal guilty pleasures, Arthur's theme, Best That You Can Do by Christopher Cross from the motion picture Arthur. Uh, but he wrote in so many other amazing songs, The Look of Love, mm-hmm. uh, What the World Needs Now is Love. Lots of songs about love. Uh, he, of course, cameos in Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Burt Bacharach uh, on, on top of the bus. Uh, and he was just an absolute piping hot legend. Yeah, he really was. I mean, look, 94 is is not a bad innings by any measure, but the fact that he was... Good innings. You know, he had uh, just incredible... Uh, a matching number of songs, a matching number of classic songs, probably in this catalogue, and um, you know, quite fierce Twitter fights yesterday going on about which was the definitive version of many of them. You know, so uh, that was that was quite amusing to watch, and also very handy because people posted links, and I spent the evening sort of falling down YouTube rabbit holes of obscure covers I hadn't heard of Burt Bacharach songs, um, which is not a bad way to spend an evening, frankly. What's your favourite? It's probably Aretha Franklin. Obviously, say a little prayer for you. Okay. Yeah. Hard to beat. Yeah. Obvious, but you know, come on. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. No okay. Pretty about good that. is not the words we use with Aretha Franklin. <laughs> Have some. You do respect. love your Aretha, don't you? I absolutely um, do. We should also obviously mention as well, he, he teamed up quite often with Hal David. So he won. Uh, three Oscars. So he won uh, two Oscars for Butch Casting the Sundance Kid. One was for Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Uh, and the other one was for Arthur's theme, Best That You Can Do, uh, which I didn't actually know was a Burt Bacharach song until yesterday. So shows what I know. Uh, but he was also nominated a number of times for Alfie, of course, from the mm-hmm. film Alfie, for What's New Pussycat from the film What's New Pussycat and from The Look of Love from the original Casino Royale. Uh, and that's just a tip of the Bacharach iceberg. Very, very much missed indeed he will be said Yoda and uh, in terms of other movie news we're not talking about it now because we haven't seen it yet but the trailer for Fast 10 is going to be out later on today so if you need a dose of testosterone and this podcast isn't doing (laughs) enough for you then check it out from 4pm but we have some world exclusive images don't we Sophie from from that movie (laughs) on on Empire Online dot com right now we do. Uh, which are very very exciting yep world first looks at the film we've got vin diesel with a car uh that's <gasps> all i know about that one um <laughs> we've got jason momoya on a motorbike different <gasps> form of transport um as dante yeah uh with louis leterrier describes him as 1000 percent momoa 1000 percent momoa um, to put it in context, man. I'm 23% Momoa. <laughs> he is 1,000% Momoa. <laughs> um, yeah, which is very good. We also have a first look at Brie Larson's character um, called Tess. So you can find those on Empire Online and our social media channels. Go and like and follow us. Thank you very much. There you go. You see, you see, Fast 10 is not just going to be a big old sausage fest. It has it has women in it and they may even be talking. Women talking, which oh, brings me... Segue. Oh, it's a, it's a great segue. Uh, this is why they give us awards, uh, which brings me neatly on to this week's reviews section. And we're going to start with Sarah Polly's Women Talking, which is <laughs> about a group of women 
talking, but also doing other stuff too. Hell's Bells. I mean, yeah, not much other stuff, if we're perfectly honest. Uh, this is very much um, a discussion film. Um, and and what's testament to Sarah Polly's talent, I think, is how riveting it becomes in her hands, um, even though it's a bunch of people sitting in a barn. Uh, so Earning this, 20%. <laughs> this is um, the story of a group of women in a sort of Mennonite-esque community. Um, and they basically, they learn that they have been for years they've been suffering assaults and the men of the community have told them that this is demons, this is their imagination, this is whatever, whatever. And then they finally find out that the men of the community or some of the men have been drugging them and raping them in their sleep. And so uh, the men basically for the, the wrongdoer's protection, take him off to, to jail. But they say, we're going to bail him out and we're going to come back in two days. And when we do, you have to forgive us and we have to get on with life. And so the women have these, this two-day period where there are basically no grown men in the community and they have to decide as a group what they're going to do. Are they going to stay and fight? Are they going to stay and do nothing? Or are they going to leave the only home they've ever known um, and their entire sort of community and, and you know identity behind them and, and go off in search of something new? So that's the dilemma that they face. A group of them are appointed to make this decision and talk it out and thrash it out. And, and that's what we're watching, basically. We're watching the, the debate over what to do about this horrendous situation. And it's led by Rooney Mara's Una, Claire Foy's Salome, and Jesse Buckley's Marish. And you've got um, a, a kind of a, a, a a spread of personalities there. Una's very, uh, very good, but also very determined and very strong. Um, Claire Foy's Lome is just furious. She is, she is homicidally furious. And uh, Maurice, Jesse Buckley's character, is someone who has been basically beaten down by this system and who is also furious, but in a very kind of embittered way. And so, so seeing these women talk it out along with you know older members of the community played by Judith Ivy um and Sheila McCartney uh, with younger women who are involved as well it's it's absolutely fascinating it obviously has real world par parallels with me too yes but just the wider cause of inequality in in society how do we stand up without losing our own identity how when these women's entire faith and being is wrapped up in being wives and mothers. Do they walk away from all that? So it's it's really loaded. It's really philosophically charged. It's moralistically charged. It's uh, you know political. It's I thought absolutely stunning, stunning piece of writing. It's based on the book by Miriam Toes or Tows. I apologise. I don't know how to pronounce it. I've only seen it written down um, and then adapted with with. Polly as well, but um, but yeah, just just off the charts, great performances. Everybody kind of gets a moment, but uh, and it can be sort of a little bit monologue -y at times, can be a little bit stagey, um, but in a way that I thought worked much better than a couple of quite stagey films I've seen recently. And not so, a period yeah. piece, despite appearances. Very slightly a period piece, but yes, only only just um, because it is we a came out that... and I thought it was like when is this set? Is it, is it in the fifties? <laughs> like because it does appear because of the nature of their community, it appears out of time. But it's you know as you say, it's, it's a message that kind of is is universal. And and you know you we look at the news at the moment. There's a lot of this stuff going on. Uh, Consent is on Channel Four last week. Uh, there's Emily Atak's documentary as well. It seems to be very much a conversation that is at the fore, and rightly so. And and this is a really really difficult watch. I think you and I watched it together mm. and you, you come out 
absolutely furious with the world because these women have so much anger rightly so and it feels like the deck is stacked against them they're in this system whereby you know they can forgive and they're, they're thinking about you know how it relates to their religion but their entire religion is patriarchal laid down by a group of men instructed by men run by men and it feels like they have so little in the way of options and so it's part deciding what to do and it's part exercising the demons and just venting their frustration uh, mm -hmm. as if from from these very different perspectives um but yeah really really powerful film but i think that's where una comes in because i think she's our ray of hope uh, in a she way is, yeah. for them you know so so i think that it's it's very balanced that way so it's not just you know just a depressing awful film there, there's a lot of strength and a lot of reason for hope in here i think so how would you how would you sell it to people who are perhaps you know, they'll, you know even the title might be slightly off putting to to people <laughs> they might yeah. go oh talking a talkie film you know it's like it, movies like this sometimes and I'm thinking of Mass which came out a couple of years ago and you know they're hard sells on paper how do you convince people to go and see something that is very very dialogue heavy that's very very you know stagey in this way and without making them feel like they're being beaten over the head by by messages what what would you say to those people it can feel like that from the outside it feels like one of those where oh it's not going to be a lot of fun but it's one it's a film i should watch or something like that and i think it's genuinely more than that it it is quite theatrical but not in the sort of claustrophobic or stagey way too much that I think you can get from other films that are like that. I feel like Sarah Polly as a director does so well to get cinematic scale and scope in there um, and see the community as a whole and not just this one conversation. Um, and for me, I absolutely loved this. It felt that have seeing these women have such space over these two hours to just talk about these things in all different kinds of ways, as Helen said, it gets quite cerebral and philosophical at times, but then it gets qu quite sort of even close to funny or darkly yeah. humorous yeah. at times. Um, it gets really, really sad, really anger-inducing. Everyone gets their moment, and it's just, it's quite cathartic to see just like this space being made for this to be talked about in this way and not feeling rushed and sort of the real-life implica implications for women who have to make the decisions about these things. Um, and that, that makes it more than just like an issues film that you feel like you should watch, but that you're going to have an awful time. It's not, it's not that for me. The way that Polly depicts, well, the way she actually avoids depicting the violence towards these women, she does it in a really great way. You have no doubt about what's occurred. And the way she shows it is truly like awful and sends shivers up your spine, but it's not explicit in any way, which shows it can be done without sort of being exploitative but it's still extremely hard hitting and everyone is just performing at just another level in this film claire foy the level of rage that she has throughout throughout is just very contagious rooney mara is like very sort of sedate weirdly and sort of like a voice of reason but also kind of a bit of a dreamer but it adds a really nice dynamic and jesse buckley is kind of weirdly sort of still trapped in the structure of the community and she takes a bit more convincing to come round but she's just like very fearsome as well in that, in that performance she's great I loved it I was extremely emotional throughout as I, I was extremely emotional at the end um the the setting is wild to me that it's more recent than you think far more recent than you think but these women have been told that it was Satan that was attacking them they are illiterate in most cases and it's it's kind of mad to place yourself in that community and see how they how they live, but 
Sarah Polly does it in such a non-judgmental, really powerful way. So yeah, I love this one. All right. Okay. Fantastic. Four stars then. We gave this one four stars in to Women Talking. Sophie, let's stay with you and let's move over to Blue Jean. Georgia Oakley's drama, which is set in the Northeast in 1988 and follows a school teacher who is a lesbian and uh, she is trying to live uh, a normal life. But Section 28 is just about to be brought into being by the government. The horrendous, pernicious Section 28 and complications ensue both personally and professionally when a new student shows up at her school. Sophie, talk to us about this one. Yes, so this is Georgia Oakley's directorial debut and it's really um, a feature debut and it's it's really a cracker. So yeah, Rosie McEwen, also her first leading role and she is excellent in this film. Um, as you say, is a PE teacher um, in Thatcherite Britain, late 1980s, Section 28 is all over the news, homophobia is rife and she's, as a teacher, um, as a closeted lesbian teacher is right in the middle of the eye of that storm um, because she's like having to sort of put on a persona when she's at work which she has a very different persona in her personal life um, she's struggling to like mesh those things together her family life as well also coincides with all of that um, yeah and a new student comes along and she sort of forges a bit of a connection with her because it's kind of clear that that new student is also queer and so she's navigating it from you know a young person's point of view and sort of looking up to um Jean as a kind of you know an aspirational figure in a way but also Jean's being so so struggling to like be herself that it's kind of creates a bit of tension in that um and this is just this really won me over it's really it's really great it's you know it's quite small it's a really small focused story but it's about you know much a much bigger thing at that time and still now that's still so present um it's very it's shot in it feels like very of that time it's quite grainy looking um it's it's shot really beautifully and Jean is in basically every every scene so Rosie McEwen does a really great job of carrying that film and letting you into her psyche um and the young actors as well excellent Kerry Hayes um plays Jean's sort of partner, sort of, you know, girlfriend, if you like, who is kind of much more comfortable with herself and being open about her sexuality, but that's kind of causing friction between them because they can't sort of marry that together with how Jean's presenting. It's creating a storm and it's it's well deserved. Um it's a small drama, it's an indie drama, and it has that flavour, like it it has that sort of the slowness at times. But I think this is really, really well done. It captures the area, it captures the time. Um and just great performances all around. Really loved it. It feels like a movie that has been, you know, it was shot in the eighties and was buried in a time capsule. Yeah, and but in like the best way. In yeah. the best way, and it's sort of you know, it it, it 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 I got Alan Clark vibes from it. I got I got uh, you know Rita Sue and Bob two vibes from it. It's not as um, funny as, as that movie uh that's that to say the least but yeah. i definitely got strong strong vibes uh of that uh from it as well uh yeah i thought it was really really great um mm-hmm. and, and rosie McEwen is is great apparently she's turned up a storm have you seen her in a othello helen yet othello no yeah, she was in Othello on the stage. Yeah, opposite Charles Terrera, who of course was Burr in oh, the wow. London yeah, Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She Iago or Desdemona? Uh, Desdemona. 
Um, she's one to watch. Like, I'm sure she'll be offered all sorts from this. And also, I would like to applaud her for her Newcastle accent because I was genuinely convinced that was her real voice. And I interviewed her, and that's not her real voice. <laughs> <laughs> and it convinced me, and it's from my neck of the woods. So, good job on that one. She told me yeah. that she watched a lot of Geordie Shaw and Cheryl Cole interviews. To try and get that right. <laughs> Why? Aye. <laughs> Why I or just do like the bloke from the, the Big Brother, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Gene has entered the diary room. Uh, also, not to go full them on, but the score is great. The score is fantastic. It's, yeah. for, it's by Chris Rowe, the Solemn Quartet, and Amy Green, and I downloaded it immediately after seeing the film. This is really lush melodramatic score that uh, you know is uh, really quite beautiful. So yeah, really really good. We gave this one four as well, four stars yep. for Blue Gene. Wow, we're on a roll. Wow, I guess it will. Keep it up, no problem. We will keep it up, no problem, indeed. Uh, because speaking of blue jeans, Magic Mike wears them yeah. sometimes. Sometimes yeah. he divests himself of them. Uh, but he is back, 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 played by Chanum. Chanum is back. Channing Tatum is back as Magic Mike uh, in Magic Mike's Last Dance, the final Magic Mike movie, the third and final part of the trilogy. Steven Soderbergh is back as director for this one, having taken... Uh, time off I say time off I'm, I'm pretty sure he shot and produced Magic Mike XL um, <laughs> I was heavily involved in that movie but he is back behind the camera for this one as director and people are expecting great things from this and my understanding is that they might be disappointed is that right Helen yeah a little bit look what look, if you just watch this as Magic Mike a Cinderella story it's fine. You know, Channing Great. Tatum, average rom-com, it's fine. He meets a rich lady at a party. She's a bit sad. He does some sexy dancing for her. And she says, hey, come to London and choreograph a show with me. I happen to own a theatre. Let's essentially invent Magic Mike live. So they go off and do that. And that's the movie. That's the whole of the movie. Um, what it isn't is a Magic Mike movie. Because, <laughs> like, I, and I went back and I, I rewatched the other two just to make sure of this. Like, mm. They are films about men. They are films about a group of men, about a group of men's friendships, about how they relate to each other, about how they, they navigate this very odd industry that they're in, about the pressures of being judged all the time on your physical beauty, about what that kind of does to you as a person, and also how you interact with the opposite sex if you are indeed attracted to them. None of that is here in Magic Mike's Last Dance. The, the dancers who he recruits to put on this show, I don't think any of them are named. I don't think there's a single one who has a single line of significant dialogue. They they don't play any role in the film. It's all about Magic Mike and his relationship with, with Salma Hayek's um, Max. Um, and there are some interesting kind of things to be maybe teased out of their, their relationship. And the, the, the film hints at some stuff that's kind of interesting in, in their relationship but it's it, there's a, there's an idea that she is kind of this person who has new fads all the time and gets swept up in new enthusiasms and then kind of drops them after a couple of years and there's also an idea that maybe he can't settle down with anyone because he gets bored or he gets distracted so maybe that's why they're good for each other maybe but the film never really explores that that's me giving the film more credit than it seems yeah, to claim I was for just itself about to say, you're giving it too much credit there helen i think yeah it's also maybe uh I mean, look, I quite enjoyed the dancing in the sense that it is always nice to watch people do a thing that they do well, 
do it well. You know, there, there's a one guy in particular, not Mike himself, who appears to go from point A to point B without passing through any of the intervening points. And that's kind of magical to watch that kind of dancing ability. It's 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 amazing. However, it the, the dancing doesn't have any story behind it like it did in again both of the previous two films. I think it's it's almost like Steven Soderbergh wasn't involved in the other films and came in thinking, oh, this is a chick flick franchise, let's make a chick flick. Mm. And the other two are emphatically not chick flicks. I'll say it again, they are not love stories. They are not actually about women, they are about men. They're about real interesting ideas about non-toxic masculinity, but they are not about, they are not chick flicks. And so it is so weird to me that this is the film we've got from from... The third Magic Mike, and I would love to understand what the thinking behind it was. I like, I didn't hate it. I had a perfectly nice time. I watched it. There was dancing. There was music. The Pony Cinematic Universe has come to a conclusion with Pony <laughs> played at one point. It, fine, but like, it's not a Magic Mike film, and that's what's so so weird about it. This quite actively angered me. Actually, I'm I'm quite a recent Magic Mike convert. To be fair, I watched the first one when it came out. But then I recently rewatched it again and watched XL for the fir- XXL for the first time, like last week or something, in preparation, of course. Which and was blown away by it. It's so good. It's as good as everyone says. And this, I just found, it had none of the heart and soul that those films do. Um, it 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 wasn't sexy, but not in the way in terms of dancing. That's not where the sexiness of those films comes from. It comes from their interactions with the people they meet on that road trip in XXL specifically, how they meet along the way, how they interact, how, you know, making a woman smile is kind of like the key goal for them. And like, there's there's not really any of that in this one. A lot of it, as you say, Helen, comes from the characters of the dancers and engaging with them as people. And, you know, they are actors. Joe Manginello is, you know, an incredible screen presence. Matt Baum is so good. And you don't have any of that with these dancers because they are from the live show. And it honestly just feels like SponCon for Magic Mike Live for about two thirds of the entire runtime. Um, the setup to get him to London is very contrived to me, very sort of hand wavy. The the romance between him and Max, Mike and Max, I just don't feel was earned. And the setup in London is weird. So there's a lot of scenes with yeah. him getting to know her driver slash butler and her her teenage daughter who for some reason narrates the story oh that was like, very great that was that was straight out of the sort of teenage london film playbook you know that that's yeah. that could have been an amanda Bynes film do you know what i mean like it, these are all selling points helen you're you, you know <laughs> i like amanda Bynes. i would absolutely welcome her to come back to the screen in a big way i think she's fantastic yeah but what a girl wants is not her best work let's all be honest about this come on this and idea that you come to London, you instantly fall in with posh people. Like, we've all tried it. It has not worked for any of us. Look at us, you know. James is one of our best friends. <laughs> <laughs> part of part of the magic of the first two films is it's set in these, like, small town, small town Florida, like, you know, it's about sort of working class well, people. Well, city Florida, to be fair, but yeah. But blue collar Florida, for sure. Yes, blue collar. That's the, that's the word I'm looking for. Thanks, Helen. It has that feel about it. He's thrust into all this glamour here. The whole sort of like cheeky London vibe of it really like rubbed me up the wrong way. And like the butler guy who's like posh and sort of it's funny how posh he is and all that I just found like really just incongruous with the tone of what Magic Mike normally is and how 
Max is like talking about sort of empowering women and all of this stuff and she's so disempowered and she's like she's incredibly wealthy she is going through a divorce that might mean that changes but it's like I'm not sure I'm supposed to feel like you you want me to feel that you are the powerless person in this situation and I'm just not sure that that's tr- true <laughs> and like I just couldn't buy into that version of it at all yeah. And the film kind of tries to call her out on that a couple of times and point out yeah. like she's very she's quite hostile to other women sometimes because she's jealous of him and he's jealous of her before they've admitted that they're actually in love with each other. You know, there's a mm. sort of quite a funny thing where they're both blatantly dealing badly with anyone else paying the other one attention. But because it isn't cohesive and consistent in that, it doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't come across. There's no, no. there's no there there. Look, if you just want to see um, Channing Tatum, you know, get a makeover in Liberties and then go dance a bit with some other handsome young men, then great. But like, it's not a Magic Mike film, actually. It's just Magic Mike Live. And there are a couple of really good dance, like the one at the beginning is good. And the Channing does one that's sort of like in the rain, big step up two vibes from that one, which is in the trailer, mm. which is great. But yeah, even the dance <laughs> sequences compared to compared to that convention third act in XXL, it's 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 nowhere near as good and even Compared the, first to the gas one. station in xxl it's yes. got none on it not magic for me sadly that's right xxl i said xl you which yep, perhaps fine. might be a, a freudian slip on my <laughs> part uh, <laughs> 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 Mike, <Long>. xxs <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh how i mean not that's that's get down to brass tacks how are the abs i mean are the, there, are the abs are all them? present and correct all all 15 yeah. of them on every bottoms, single person are bottoms? yeah not in not not many bottoms actually. No, no. They mostly keep their trousers on. Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. There's not enough dancing. There's not enough, not enough. A lot of things. Anyway, it's my thoughts. <laughs> All right, two stars, two stars for Magic Mike's Last Dance. Still good to see a Steven Soderbergh movie released on the big screen, even True. if it has felt like it's been a bit of an afterthought in terms of marketing and whatnot. Anyway, two stars for that. And um, we are running rapidly out of time on this one. But Helen, you watched Your Place or Mine, so God damn it, you've got to tell people about it. I really do. <laughs> no, it, look, is, it, is it telling or warning? What, what, what is it? Uh, it's Look, it's fine. If you turn on a Reese Witherspoon, Ashton Kutcher rom-com, you know what you're getting, and that's exactly yeah. what you get. Do you know what I mean? It's like, uh, it's like, um, it's like the lament configuration. If you, if, you, <laughs> if you take that and you start messing with that puzzle, you know what you're getting into. Cenobites are going to come out of the box. Like, those just, you know, that's what's going to happen. Uh, the only, I guess, you know, slight thing to be aware of this time is that so the idea is that they play um, a former hookup who became best friends instead of actually falling into a relationship. And uh, he's moved across the country to New York. She lives in LA with her son. For one reason or another that's too boring to go into, they end up having to swap lives essentially for weeks. So she ends up in his beautiful bachelor pad in Brooklyn and he ends up looking after her son and, and sort of, you know, playing babysitter for a week. Um and 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 then through the course of this they realise they're in love with each other, even though there are other, you know, people vying <laughs> for face. their attention, notably Jesse Williams, uh, as a New York book editor. So there's a little thread about, you know, getting back to your dreams and kind of learning who you are and and maybe getting over your own bullshit but mostly it's just an absolutely (laughs) brainless friday night my brain has stopped working i sat in a hot studio yesterday and you know cooked myself i can't think anymore this is what i'll watch it's that kind of a film you know so honestly yeah yesterday was so hot it cooked my nines anyone get that reference no anyone i did not understand the man two brains Oh. When 
when Is Kathleen it Dr. Turner, Hafer, Hafer? When Kathleen Turner puts Anne Amel Mahay in the brain in the jar, she she puts her into the oven and he gets her out of the oven and Just then he in goes time. count yes. count to ten, count to ten. She goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten. And he goes, Oh my god, you cooked her nines. <laughs> Uh, you need to watch that film again. It's so good. It's, James loves it. James, it's, a, it's a huge film for James. Yes, it's, it's, it, it does sound so very, very funny. That's the same sequence. It's the same sequence into the Mud Scum Queen. It's I so don't remember good. any of this. I have seen oh, this James film, could... but I have erased it from my memory on account of it being so unfunny. His wife has died. His wife has died. And he has a big picture of her in his foyer. Right. And he's met Kathleen Turner, uh, who is like, uh, you know, smoking hot femme fatale. And he knows he shouldn't get involved. And he, he goes to his wife's picture and he says, look, you know, I want to get, I want to, you know, basically just bang this woman. Is there anything I shouldn't do? Just give me a sign. Just tell me any sign. And the picture starts revolving rapidly around on the wall while a, a female voice goes, no, no. <laughs> And then it stops and he goes, any sign, any sign at all, I'll be looking out for it. Come on, tell me. Tell oh, me that it. hasn't maybe made you. Not. That you know like... what? I'm actually starting to think I don't think I've seen this film. I'm, I'm very familiar <laughs> I, with the I... cover of the VHS tape, but I'm now starting to think, although I thought I'd seen it, I don't think I have because I have no yes. memory of that. He's got the screw top method of brain surgery where you unscrew someone's head like a chat, like a jar. Honest, and then it doesn't sound like comedy gold. <laughs> Bang it against the kitchen it's sink so good. if it doesn't work. It's a, I, I sense an empire get together coming up. I feel like we have to you correct think? this. We go around uh, to Chris's house and watch Man with Two Brains, so I can just yes. moan all the way through it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're really selling it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll do a double bill. That and nuns on the run. Yes. How can anyone who loves the n- the nuns on the run, the nuns on the run, the nuns on the run, it's like, definitive yeah, it's, like it's like the Wolverine. Yeah, that's right. It's the sequel. <laughs> the Suicide Squad. Yeah. How can anyone who worships at the altar of nuns on the run dismiss and poo-poo the man with two brains? Is beyond me. You have cooked your good taste. Well, that is maybe what's one happened day to you. I will agree to be educated. But today is not that day. <laughs> today is not that day. Anyway, five stars for the man with two brains. Uh, we haven't given a an official review yet to your place or mine, but I'm I'm led to believe that one is being worked on right now. Top men are working on it right now. <laughs> Who top men? Uh, so that's probably a two. I'm guessing that's a two. I, but we'll I, see. I, feel, I mean, look, it, it could go to a three. There's nothing. It could go to a three. Bad about it. It's just yeah. there's nothing that special. Either, How are you the know? abs? I mean, at least 15. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of abs, I've got to go do a workout. Uh, so, oh God, I'm so physically active. <laughs> That's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when hopefully the aircon will be working in the studio and we will be joined by a cavalcade of people. Henry Cavill. Uh, because next Henry week, Cavill. <laughs> Henry Cavalcade. <laughs> yes. He's coming around to fix the computer. He could probably, he could probably, <laughs> probably do could. it. Yeah. Yeah. He build us a new one is what he'd do. I think he could. He could, he could absolutely upgrade uh, our equipment. Uh, do no not pub, think no. about Henry yeah. Cavill's equipment. Not a euphemism. Helen. Gosh. Stop I just, it. You just said Stop it. it, Helen. How am I supposed to not think about it? Oh. <laughs> How are the apps? Now. <laughs> it's out in the open now. Anywho... Uh, next week is the release of Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, and we're going to be uh, gripped by Quantumania on the podcast because we'll be talking to two Quantumaniacs from that film, Ant-Man himself, Paul Rudd, and Kang. 
Mm. Kang the Conqueror, Jonathan Majors will be on the show. So we got Kang the Conqueror and Lang, the quite possibly conquered on next week's show as well. Plus, we'll be talking to Jenny Slate. No, she's not. She's bang on time. Uh, and she's the star of Marcel, the shell with shoes on. And uh, she's going to be on next week's show as well. What a, what an amazing show. So much better than this week's. Hey, hey. Thanks, Chris. Don't do these very often. How rude. (laughs) Anyway, that is it. Um, All that remains now is for me to say goodbye to my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Sophie Butcher. Goodbye. I've realised I'm the... Oh, no, Helen has also done a funny Squadcast name. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. But Sophie has not. Uh, Sophie yeah. has let the site down. I'm as sorry. As James. I presume we have to pay extra for you to do a Squadcast yes. name, James. Yes, <laughs> that is 100% correct. Okay. Uh, James Dyer. Goodbye, James Dyer. Goodbye. It is goodbye to Magic Mike, a Cinderella story. <laughs> Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me, El Cazador Troveo de los Hombres. The demon who makes trophies trophies of of men. men. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm off to cook my sevens. That's what I'm off to do. I'm really hungry. I could go for a whole plate of sevens. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye.